The following message is from the audio teaching library of the Briarwood Pulpit, a ministry of the Briarwood Presbyterian Church in Birmingham, Alabama. Our speaker is Dr. Harry Reeder, Senior Pastor of Briarwood Presbyterian Church. It is our hope and prayer that this message will equip and encourage you in your walk with Christ, and as a result, you will be used by our Lord as an instrument of change to further His kingdom and bring honor and glory to the name of Christ. Here now is our pastor teacher, Harry Reeder. Turn in your copies of God's Word to Genesis 1, please. Genesis 1. Now let me confess, I'm going to do my best to get into what I promised and uh, get a, a foothold in this matter of biblical masculinity from which we develop a doctrine of Christian manhood. And I hope to get us a good start into it, but uh, as you know, we haven't been in our Genesis series, Foundations from Genesis, uh, for quite some time. And so I just want to make sure we're aware of where we are, particularly in this sanctity of gender from which we study biblical masculinity and biblical femininity. Now, before we get there and before we take a look at it, uh, let me just say a, a couple of things. Uh, I'm going to be upfront and honest with you and uh, uh, and um, always honest with you, but I don't always give you all the plans. We let it unfold. But I thought it was important to let you know that uh, where the, I plan on this heading is into another sanctity from Genesis that we have not yet covered, and that is the sanctity of uh, marriage, and then the sanctity of family, and um, and then from that would come parenting, uh, well, would come what is a husband, what is a wife, what is parenting, what is a father, what is a mother, but I want you to realize all of that's working backwards. All of that's working backwards from father and mother, uh, then we'll look at parenting expressed through fatherhood and motherhood, and then we back up and look at marriage, which is foundational to, pa- uh, to parenting, at least historically it has been, although it is not any longer in our culture. Uh, marriage, which is uh, the covenant of marriage itself, and then what is the call of a Christian husband and what is the call of a Christian wife, and um, that awaits... Our, our now return to the sanctity of gender, male and female, from which we look at biblical masculinity. In other words, what does it mean to be a man? Whether you're married, single, have children, don't have children, doesn't matter. This is why God made you. And then Christian manhood, the result of God saving a man. Biblical masculinity reflects what God made a man to do as male, and then um, and biblical femininity, what God made a woman to be. It doesn't matter. These are basic um, foundational statements about femininity and masculinity, uh, whether you're married or not, whether you're single, married, well, whether you're grandparenting, whether you're parenting. And then when that's established, now we get the doctrine of Christian manhood. When God saves a man, what does he do when he redeems him from his sin? And what does that mean? How does a Christian live as a man? How does a Christian live as a woman? Which then leads to understanding uh, uh, biblical single. I mean, what does it mean to be single from a 
Christian world and life view? What does it mean to be married according to a Christian world and life view? What does it mean to be a single woman? What does it mean to be a single man? What does it mean to be a married man? What does it mean to be a married woman? So we look at husband and wife, and then we go to parenting, father and mother. We might even take a whole Sunday to talk about that glorious status of life Grandparenting, which is God's reward for not killing your children, but raising them in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. So that's, that's the scope in front of us. So I now register something that I've had to deal with my whole life, and that is the, um, the, the pastoral discouragement that um, so few, first of all, embrace Lord's Day evening worship. Uh, and uh, the Lord says, bring the morning and evening sacrifices of praise. Uh, and then um, in the Sabbath Psalms. And then um, also the subject matter. You probably noticed that except for the ministry theme and, and um, you know, uh, Advent season and, um, and Holy Week, you'll notice that the normal um, course of life for me is expositional preaching, lectio continua, as we call it, verse by verse, book by book in the Bible. Uh, that's what I believe I have to do. I will acknowledge I can get a bigger crowd. I can get a much bigger crowd. You have no idea how many stories I know that I can tell. You have no idea how many jokes I've got. They're really funny. I mean, really, really funny. Um, we can get a crowd. But I, I love God's word, and I love God's people, and I know the object didn't get a crowd, it's to preach the word of God. What you pray for is that people have a hunger for that word, because that's what they need. So here we are with an LGBTQAI plus sexual revolution. Perhaps the most jagged edges in that sexual revolution that is coming out of Progressive, uh, progressive secularism aided in evangelical churches by progressive Christianity, which is going to do the same thing to progress to evangelical churches as liberalism did to mainline Protestant churches. And, um, and one of the most jagged edges of this spear point of that Revolution that's come to the door of the church is in the pews of the church and is even occupying the pulpits of the church. One of the uh, things that is perhaps the most challenging is this issue of the exaltation of gender dysphoria. Until this revolution, uh, 20, 20, 20 years ago, the number of adolescents that we ministered to with gender dysphoria was somewhere between 3 to 6% at most, usually 3%. 3% of, of um, individuals would be documented as going through gender dysphoria. I feel, like I'm a, I feel like I'm a female, but I've got a male body, etc. And we used to treat that as what it is, a disorder. No longer do we do that. Because in the revolution of our culture... The words rights and liberties are used, but what they are, remember what I told you, progressivism, whether it's secular or, Christ, or professing Christian secularism, uh, professing progressive Christianity, progressivism delights in using vocabulary, but a different dictionary. 
delights in it. So when they talk about rights and liberty, number one, they're not talking about God-given rights. They're talking about what today is known as positive rights, which are man's positing of rights. And, the, and, and that we have a right to do this. And you cannot say we can't. In this country, our forefathers, under the influence of multiple revivals, not the least of which was the Great Awakening, realized, as you see in your Declaration of Independence, that rights are God-given and God-revealed in his creation, which is why I'm going to the book of Genesis. The book of Genesis gives us foundational axioms through the sanctities that God has created in his creation for his glory and our well-being. It is no accident that the book of Genesis is avoided in many evangelical pulpits and most under attack even in our seminaries. Because the rudiments of a Christian world and life view are established in the book of Genesis. And that's why we have gone through sanctity of divine revelation. Sanctity of God. Sanctity, the sanctity of life. The sanctity of man made in the image of God. The sanctity of gender, male and female. We've gone through the sanctity, uh, the sanctity of creation. All of those sanctities that we have covered and now in this one, the sanctity of gender, As God made us male and female, therefore the sanctity of masculinity and femininity, all of those things are foundational. So what does man do? Instead of looking at the God-ordained sanctities and building a world in life view that accompanies and that affirms and that reveals our God-given creation rights, What man does is attack the doctrine of creation, attack the doctrine of God, and in the name of liberty, declares positively from human imagination our rights and our, quote, liberties. But they don't mean right and liberty the way you do. What they mean is not the freedom to do what is right, they assume the power and authority to declare their own rights. And that's what we call autonomy. Auto, self, nomas, law. Not God's law do we delight in, as it is revealed in the Ten Commandments and as it is revealed in the creation sanctities, what some call natural law, I prefer to call it creation mandates, not only um, is, there a, is there a declaration, we will self-law, we will self-rule. The word nomos is the word for rule or law. Our, um, our maxims, our um, axioms. Now, this isn't unusual, is it? Anybody ever read the book of Judges? What does it start with? They did what was right in their own eyes. 
What does it end with? They did what was right in their own eyes. And it says it three other times in the book of Judges. That is autonomy. That is being sold as rights and liberties. That's why you search for jurists who don't interpret the Constitution, but will legislate through a, through a supposed right in the Constitution and read something in, such as the absurdity that our Constitution and our Constitution somewhere has found the mythical fabrication of the right to kill an unborn child that's unwanted, inconvenient, or imperfect. These are crucial issues. So I register my sanctified, dare I say sanctified, I've had to deal with it for four decades now, my sanctified discouragement, but the Lord ultimately is my encouragement. As we deal with these things that are so crucial, yet so many seem not to care until it comes to their home. Then they care. As the daughter or son begins to embrace erotic same-sex attractions. Or, here's the big one, the jagged edge of transgenderism. Gender dysphoria in the last ten years has risen with the emphasis in the last five years. Six hundred percent. And now has been found a right for children to undergo chemical or surgical, quote, unquote, transgender surgeries and treatments. Now, let me explain to you what the chemical treatments are. They're the very same drugs we use to castrate sex offenders in prison. Chemically castrate them. That's being done to reassign, to, 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 um, uh, to, um, reject puberty in order to manipulate the body with hormones and chemicals. Are the rising surgical industry top surgery for women and of course lower surgery for men? with excruciating scarring and pain for the rest of one's life. And it's irreversible. And now the right is extended to children to do so without parental authority. Do you not think that 600% is coming to Birmingham? Do you not think it's coming to our church? And our families, highly impressionable teenagers grappling with all of the difficulties and challenges of adolescence, are unbelievable prey for this, for this many times could be a valid issue of adolescent gender dysphoria. But now, what would have never been there has to be there because now, in the culture, it is cool. And how do you deal with that as a parent from a biblical world and life view? And then comes the phone call and then comes the email. 
And then comes what I gladly give, pastoral ministry, along with all of our other pastors and our other elders. We gladly give it. But maybe it wouldn't have been there if we had had a biblical world and life view that was informing our parenting and what we could see coming and what we could move them toward so that they weren't, uh, they weren't, um, prey for the hucksters of this sexual revolution that produces nothing but sexual anarchy, not in the name of rights and liberties, but in the name of autonomy. So, as I said this morning, I think this is a starting back in this matter of gender that will lead us to biblical masculinity and biblical femininity, to the doctrine of Christian manhood, the doctrine of Christian womanhood, and then on and then carries us on further into marriage and the doctrine and, and I'm sorry, carries us further to Christian singleness as a man or a woman. A marriage and what does it mean to be a husband and a wife as a Christian and then parenting, fatherhood and motherhood. So we're going to walk our way through that. I'll also tell you that I have asked our pastoral staff to seek and try to find a way that we can initiate at least for a number of years some um, focused uh, discipling conferences on marriage and parenting and singleness and everything that we can, uh, we can further this, uh, this issue to not, not simply give you the, the means to, to not be the victims of what's going on or be victimized by it, you and your family, but so that we can build godly marriages and godly men and godly women so that we have men like Paul wanted Timothy to be, a man of God, women who are women of God and daughters of Sarah, and then carry that into singleness and carry that into, and carry that into, um, uh, um, marriages as husbands and wives. In other words, I want to go on the offense. What is happening in the LGBTQ agenda, I'll repeat from this morning, is nothing more than the embrace of a culture of insanity, absurdity, immorality, and lethality. And that is what is happening. And that becomes an opportunity for us to minister to those who have been drawn out of their own sin sin nature into it to bring the good news of the gospel that cancels the power of sin as well as gives you the cancellation of the shame and guilt of sin. But that people might see something different. Even if it's an island in the midst of a tsunami of of a cultural death spiral. But I have to say one more thing there. This simply isn't, if our culture keeps doing this, is coming under the judgment of God. I believe what you see our culture doing is the judgment of God. God gave them over. That perhaps, other than depart from me, are the most frightening words in the Bible. God gave them over to the desires of their heart. But we've got the great message of the gospel, the power of God unto salvation to everyone who believes. The glorious message that if we confess our sins, he cleanses us and and changes us. And then as the church stays on mission, 
Our mission isn't cultural transformation. That's a consequence. Our mission is center transformation that turns out Christians who are salt of the earth and light of the world. Our narrow mission with our comprehensive message of how to eat and drink or whatever you do to the glory of God turns out Christians with a broad mission in life. Well, one of those things to learn from the whole counsel of God is the sanctity of gender. And then I want to carry it initially to de- tonight into a the first four-way, foray into biblical masculinity. Would you t- look in your Bibles in Genesis 1? And I'll remind you that when it's, I'll remind you of what the Bible says in this matter of the sanctity of gender, from which comes the sanctity of biblical masculinity and biblical femininity. Now, here in Acts, uh, I mean, I'm sorry, here in Genesis 1, it says in verse 28, here's what God's word says, I'm sorry, verse 26, then God said, let us, there you see the plural accommodating the doctrine of the Trinity, we have one God who subsists in three persons, then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish, by the way, would you tuck that away in your mind, our likeness and then he, and then let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth so god created man this is uh, this was this was done in a poetic genre here now the genesis 1 through 11 is not poetry it is not um, it is not symbolic poetic language it's narrative it has all the signs of historical narrative. But here in, in Genesis, in this account, is a poetic statement, almost like a doxology to God for what he has done in the creation of man. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him singular. But what is him? Just as God is one in three persons, man is one in two genders. He created man, male and female. He created them. And God blessed them. Here is the benediction of God upon this moment. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. And have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of, and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. So he gives them a threefold creation mandate. One, subdue the earth. Two, have dominion over the creation. Three, fill the earth. Which, by the way, brings us another sanctity we're going to get to, the sanctity of work. As well as the sanctity of Sabbath is built into this. But here, but so he gives him this threefold task and God said, behold, I have given you every plant yielding uh, seed that is upon the face of all the earth and every tree with seed in its fruit. You shall have them for food and to every beast of the earth and to every bird of the heavens and to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has the breath of life. I have given every green plant for food and it was so and God saw everything that he had made and behold, it was very good. And there was evening and there was morning the sixth day. So God has made man. Here's the sanctity of man. God has made man to image him male and female. Now, why is there male and female? 
There are two reasons why. Number one, God made them male and female to properly image the Trinity, our one God who dwells in three persons. That to image God required the making of man, male and female. So that when, so you can see obviously that man and man and woman are male and female are built, are, are granted equality of existence in their role of imaging God, yet, yet their unit, yet their equality is not interchangeability. Equality is not sameness. If equality, now please just be just a little logical. If equality is sameness expressed in interchangeability, what a man does, a woman does, what a woman does, a man does. Number one, why are they created differently? Mentally, physically, emotionally, biologically. Number two, why create the other gender? If they're interchangeable, they're not needed. You just have God imaged in the one. If the two are the same. Equality is there by status of creation. But it is not interchangeability. It is not sameness. There is difference. And the obvious difference is physically and biologically and sexually. But it extends beyond that. Believe me, I've been a pastor long enough. I know this, I'm treading on dangerous ground now. But I have, um, listen, I've been on trips with men and I've been on trips with women. If I can get women talking, man, they're going to love the time together. They build relationships through the currency of language. Men, no. No, 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 no. They got to go do something together. Let's go hunting. Let's play golf. I take them to battlefields. They all have their turf in their bus seat until we walk through two battlefields and then they're patting each other on the back. It's, it's, we are different. That is not superiority and inferiority. It's just different. Now, why is it that that is not desired? Why is it that we battle against that? It's called the curse of sin. And I want to bring you to that in just a moment. But before I do, I said there were two reasons why he made male and female. Not only to properly image God and the Trinity requires male and female. In the distinctives between male and female, as well as the unity of male and female and the equality of male and female. Let me just let me give you one illustration. Who, when Jesus says he's going to give us the Holy Spirit as the Spirit of Christ in the New Covenant, what does he name him? Is there a guess? He says, I'm going to send to you, bingo. I was wondering if somebody would get both words in. The other helper. The other Helper. Well, if the Holy Spirit is the other helper, who do you think he's referring to as 
helper one. That would be himself. I'm going to send my spirit, the other helper. I've come as God's solution to your sin. And now I'm going to send the one who is going to bring you to the solution. And that's me. And you can't be saved without me. And you can't come to me without him. You've got to be born again by the spirit. So here is, and now when we go to creation and God makes man, male and female, which one of the genders does God give the title helper? The female. Both male and female bear the image of the Trinity. But there is a particular gravitas to the woman's role in imaging the work of grace and mercy and nurture in Christ and the Holy Spirit, the helper. But there's another reason why God made them male and female. It's not only to image him, but to do the task he gave them. He gave them three things, have dominion, be fruitful and multiply, and subdue the earth. I've made your home, now be a good steward of this home. And I want you to, I want you to cultivate it, I want you to subdue it, I want you to work on it, and I want you, made in my image, not only to be created, now we can't create, but we can be creative, made in the image of God. And I want you to be creative, and I want you to subdue it, and I want you to not only subdue the earth, I want you to have dominion over everything that's in the earth, including the animals, and I want you to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. And in the next chapter, I'm, I, I don't have time, I, but and I've done it one other time, so I'm just going to refer you back to that Sunday night sermon. And then you come to Genesis chapter 2, where we bring the microscope upon the home of Adam and Eve that God made called Eden, or paradise. And as he is there to fellowship with them, and they are carrying out this mandate, he is, he is having dominion. He's naming the animals. He's showing his authority. Naming the animals. He is tending and def- he is tending the, the garden. He is doing all of that. And then God says, I am going to make for him a helper, completer, a suitable helper. Why? Because it's not good for him to be alone. That does not mean relationally. Now, ladies, please know, I love to relate, relate to my wife. And if I'm away from her any period of time, I feel a relational emptiness. But the reality is there was not a relational emptiness. Who did Adam have fellowship with intimately with no barriers of sin and its consequences? God. There wasn't something missing relationally or psychologically. What was missing was the one necessary To get his job done. To subdue the earth. To have dominion. His co-regent. His co-regent made in the image of God to steward and govern the creation. And certainly the most obvious. He couldn't be fruitful and multiply. And there was not in the naming of the animals a suitable helpmate. So God gave him that wonderful anesthetic, hopefully the one I had, well, that span of eight surgeries. 
I got to where I was kind of, can we create a surgery? I kind of want that anesthetic, not anesthetic, uh, anesthesia. We've got those people. I, every time I meet them in the pastor in the pastor's class, they say, "Oh, I'm an anesthesia." I say, "Wonderful. We got something in common. We put people to sleep on a regular basis." And so here is um, here he puts him to sleep, and then he takes from his rib. Now notice something. What was Adam, as male, made from? Dust of the ground. What was his job? Subdue. That earth from which you were taken. Fill that earth from which you were taken. And have dominion over that earth from which you were taken. Do you see how the way he was created fit his task? Then he can't do that alone. He needs the fullness of bearing God's image to do those three things. So a woman-ish is used to bring forth Isha. Ish man, Isha woman. Ish, Isha reflection of man. Similar but different. And he wakes up from that anesthesia and he says... This is now bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman. Actually, I think what really happened is he woke up, looked at her and said, Whoa, man. That's what I think he did. That's what I think he did. But anyway, what we're told in the Bible is he said, She shall be called Isha because she was taken out of man. Now, what is the woman doing? She's the helper completer to her husband. In the covenant of marriage. Therefore she is created with certain gifts that show up in all of life. Not just marriage. She has this dynamic within her life of how she is made. She is made from his side because she completes him. She's not from his head. She's not over him. She's not from his feet. She's not under him. She comes from his side to come alongside of him. So you need, for, for the creation mandate to be fulfilled, we need male and female. For God to be imaged, we need male and female. Now, what is the genderism of our day? It's androgyny. We're going to rebel against the... Now, please follow this. It's driven by autonomy. We will not have God as God. And how do you attack God as distinct from his creation and his creatures? You attack all of the distinctions God put in creation. The sexual distinctions... Male and female. Marriage, distinctions in marriage. Distinctions in gender. This is nothing more. This entire revolution is nothing more than the selling of a bag of air in the name of cosmic treason against God. That's what it is. That's at the root of it. 
Nobody's discovered anything that we got it wrong for 4,000 years about sexuality and marriage. What we have done and experienced is a culture that says no to being under God and now wants to be God. And you attack the distinction of the creator over his creation by attacking the distinctions he has put within his creation. And the one that is under clear assault because it it is directly related to all of the other sexual anarchy promotions in today's uh, cultural revolution is in fact male and female. So now, instead of a biblical view of gender, in which we know when God made man male and female, he said what? What did he say? This is what? It's good. And he blessed it. And now we say, no, no. (laughs) It's not good. I'm going to engage in chemical manipulation upon the body. And surgical mutilation upon the body. It's not good. And therefore, in rebellion, we then embrace, declare good, remove any statement of authority that would prevent it, this rebellion against God, even at the cost of the life, the entire life of a child, with these irreversible, chemical, um, suppressive, uh, manipulative uh, hormones and treatments, And then surgical mutilation. I believe what we are doing is nothing less than child abuse. I believe it's criminal. And I think that's why the authority structures are attacked in order to get out from from criminal uh, charges. And it is done. We are willing to sacrifice our children in the womb and now in their adolescence in order to state our rebellion against God. And what we as believers need to understand is the sanctity of gender. Well, I promised you um, just one other thing there. I want you to remember as we delve into biblical masculinity and biblical femininity, the way God made you shows up in what God expects of you as a man or as a woman. There's a reason as to why God made man physically, emotionally, verbally, psychologically, not superior, different than a woman, and he made a woman physically, biologically, psychologically, verbally, mentally different than a man. There's a reason why. And it shows up in how we function within our homes and within our church. And when we are salt and light, it will make a difference in our society. I'll just give you one example. I'm going to betray myself. So let's say Cindy and I go home tonight and we have a um, our popcorn supper and we watch um, our movie as well as this week's, uh, this is our closing TV entertainment. Uh, 
We watch the movie we've selected, and we start off, while the corn is popping, uh, we start off with the last episode of Blue Bloods. And, uh, and so that's what we're going to do. And then we go to bed. And then I hear somebody breaking in our, out our back door. And I said, Cindy says, honey, there's somebody at the back door. I said, yeah. And she says, what are we going to do about it? I said, well, she says, honey, I see them. They're coming in. Well, honey, go get them. Now, what would you think of me as a man or as a pastor if I sent my wife? Now, believe me, I know my wife. She's probably already there, and I got to run to get ahead of her. I'll tell you that story sometime. But uh, she's small, but she's wiry. I can tell you that. And uh, so, uh, so I, I mean, what would you, yet that's where we are as a culture. We, we're now setting up to draft our wives and our daughters to go fight the battles that our politicians keep dreaming up that we never win, even though we've got great warriors. And now we're going to bring our women into it, our wives and our daughters. To send them. You do not leave here and said Harry said that women can't be involved in the military. I did not say that. But I think men were made to tend and defend. Now, I know the proverbial mother bear. I pastor about 2,000 of them. I'm well aware of that. But I also know who was equipped and called to do it. Not just who is willing to do it. And what does it mean to be a rightly ordered culture? It starts with rightly ordered families and rightly ordered churches that say no to an offshoot of progressivism, which is egalitarianism, that men and women are equal and therefore they are interchangeable. We've got a different world in life view. God made us different for a reason. What is biblical masculinity that's transformed by the grace of God into Christian manhood? Now, let me just get you thinking about it. Um, So thank you for letting me catch up on that and affirm the sanctity of genderhood, uh, gender as we move into the pursuit of manhood by establishing biblical masculinity. Would you go with me in your Bible to, uh, I'm sorry, to 1 Corinthians, 1 Corinthians, And I'm just going to give you, and we're going to come right back here next Sunday night. So here's where we're headed on biblical masculinity. I'm going to, I want to teach you from God's word, what is biblical, what did God make men to do? How did he create them and why did he create them? And what we're going to see is biblical manhood that moves by God's grace, and I'm sorry, biblical masculinity that moves by God's grace into Christian manhood. And what we're going to see are the two virtues of Christian manhood, the five traits of Christian manhood, and one essential doctrine. Now, I know the gospel is the most essential, but there's another doctrine for men to be men. So let me take you to um, 1 Corinthians 16. But before I take you there, I want to take you back to the Civil War. 
I want to commend to you a biography of a man that I've studied named Colonel Robert Gould Shaw. Colonel Shaw was a native of Boston. And uh, finally, in 1863, the Union, uh, the Northern uh, government, in the midst of the Civil War, uh, decided that they were going to have, quote, unquote, at that time, colored regiments. But the Congress said they had to be officered by white officers. Probably the most renowned unit of, of this initiative was the 54th Massachusetts. You can see their great mural and panoramic mural at, um, uh, at, the, at Boston Park. And um, in fact, it's right next to Park uh, Church. And uh, it's, it's really um, amazing. I got the chance to stay there with one of the, stand there with one of the descendants of the 54th Massachusetts to do talks for people that came up. And it was really a wonderful time uh, to do that. The biography on Robert Gould Shaw follows the development of the 54th Massachusetts and was made into a movie called Glory. And I like the movie. There's a few scenes that we have to get the TV version, thankfully. But, uh, but I love the movie because it contains, uh, it's relatively historically accurate. And secondly, it is, um, it contains two of my favorite actors, Denzel Washington and Morgan Freeman. And, um, uh, which I think turned in stellar performances. The 54th Massachusetts had begged for a combat duty and they finally received it. In fact, at my vacation, I stood at the very place where they made the charge uh, against a Fort Wagner uh, that was an ancillary fort next to Fort Sumter in the Charleston Harbor. Uh, it was well defended, and every assault had failed. Now, at the request of Robert Gould Shaw, the, the 54th was going to be the lead regiment in the assault the next day. It would be assured of 70% casualties. So the night before, as was their habit, in any anticipation of combat, they would have a revival. And they had the revival service. This is pretty faithfully recorded in the movie Glory. And in that revival service, there was one runaway slave that had joined the 54th Massachusetts who uh, his uh, what this ha- what di- what happened to him throughout this movie is uh, is kind of a focus with and he's played by Denzel Washington and in the revival service he's ta- he's called to give a testimony give a witness and he says no others did and the fever pitch of the revival kept rising as they were singing and stopping to give a testimony And then they finally got him to stand up and he says, and this is pretty accurate quotes. He says, I ain't got no much dealing with religion. But the 54th is my family. I don't have a family. Never have. 54th is my family. He said, tomorrow we're going to face the enemy. And we're going to face him. And we're going to face him like men. And then he looked at him and said, 
We're men, ain't we? You see, they'd been in a culture that told them, no, you're kind of a part man, part property. You're three-fifths of a man. He says, we're, we're men, ain't we? And in the midst of that combat, they showed it because the 54th manifested the two virtues that I believe undergird not only biblical masculinity, but when taken hold of by God's grace, become two glorious virtues. We sum it up in our culture with this word, gentle men. That's not just a name on a bathroom door. Gentle men. Look with me in 1 Corinthians 16. I can only just get you thinking about it. We'll be right back here next week. 1 Corinthians 16 and verse 13. Be watchful. Be watchful. Stand firm in the faith. What does be watchful, stand firm in the faith look like? Act like men. Act like men. Be strong. Let all that you do be done in love. That one verse that calls men... As believers who understand their role in biblical masculinity calls them to act like men. Can I give you the King James language? You ready for it? The old King James. Old, old King James. The Geneva Study Bible. And its translation. Play the man. Play the man. Eighty-something years old. They stood. Bishop Latimer and Bishop Ridley. I've stood at this point on many occasions. It's right there on what was once a ditch outside the wall of Oxford. And it is there that in the counter-reformation, in the rule of Mary that they were arrested along with Thomas Cranmer. He's in fact standing in a jail watching this. And in 1555, these two men were called upon to recant their commitment to salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And they said, we will not and we cannot. So they attached them to a post. They put the kindling and then they bound their hands to the post. And Ridley says to his captors, tie my bonds tight. I do not want to leave the post that God has called me to at the moment of trial. When Latimer heard it, he said to him, Master Ridley, be of good cheer. 
play the man. This is the text he quoted. It's also found four other times in your Bible. Play the man. For today, by God's grace, you and I shall light a candle for Christ that cannot be put out in all of England. Act like a man. Now, if the Bible says act like a man, then does it not affirm there's something called act like a woman? One's not superior and the other inferior. It's how God made us. He made us to be men. Our problem today is not simply toxic masculinity. Our problem today is the lack of biblical masculinity displayed by Christian men with Christian manhood. I said the captivating of it is with the word gentleman. So I am out of time. And I'm going to ask you to look at chapter 16, verse 13, that tells you be watchful, stand firm, and when he thinks of alertness and standing firm, what does that lead him to say? Play the man. Be strong. Let all that you do be done in love. The two virtues are embedded in that verse. I'm going to give you a test next Sunday night to see if you find them. And I want to share them with you. I believe they're foundational and they're crucial. I want you as husbands and wives and fathers and mothers to grasp it, not only for you, but so that we can teach our children. Our sons, what does it mean to be a man? And now, what does it mean to be a man of God? Our daughters will no longer, by God's grace, look to the entertainment world and the media world for their mentors and their models. They begin to look to the Bible and to godly mothers and godly grandmothers. You'll see the modesty issue dealt with. You'll see manners of men dealt with. As well as different lifestyles that will give glory to God and demonstrate the image of God when men are men and women are women. By the grace of God, to the glory of God. We are not going to fall prey to stereotyping from the culture. But you will remember, usually stereotypes are there because of a kernel of something that needs to be understood, biblically. And that's where we will give ourselves. We'll attempt to not go over statements and over-defining, nor short, falling short of it. But we'll start in this matter of Christian manhood, the two virtues and the five character traits and the one doctrine next Sunday night. Father, thank you for the time we could be together in your word. Thank you for my brothers and sisters. As we go through this wonderful journey, I pray that you would guide us and direct us. You would fill us. You would teach us. You would convict us. You would encourage us. You would admonish us. You would, uh, you would uh, call us. And we might 
love to hear once again men of God and women of God who live by the grace of God according to the word of God to the glory of God. In Jesus' name, amen. You have been listening to a message by Harry Reeder, Senior Pastor of Briarwood Presbyterian Church in Birmingham, Alabama. For more information on the resources available through Briarwood Presbyterian Church, or for more information on the teaching ministry of Pastor Reeder, visit us at briarwood.org or call 205-776-5200.